Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community. Inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online. Found it in Melbourne, like that. From logos to websites to packaging and books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget, which is super helpful for entrepreneurs. And right now, our listeners can get a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. A contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for a long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized design advice over the phone. Their team of design experts has helped thousands of business owners. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. It's all simple. Just go over Head over to 99designs.com slash startupgrind for your upgrade and to sign up for a design consultation today. Fun fact, by the way, our founders Joel and Derek met on 99designs. There's a funny YouTube video promo for 99designs, an old school one, where we are literally in the garage. Check it out. It's worth a watch. Thanks, 99designs. Hey, all, Chris Jonu, your buddy, back at it again. And today we are the godfather the big dog um and i think i referred to him in, uh, as the big dog he either smiled or shook his head shamelessly i don't know it was audio not video um but uh he is you know the father of lean entrepreneurship lean startup methodology um steve blank and um you know, given that he had been through a number of crises before and his post on the, you know, uh, the startup's lifeboat strategy, uh, we wanted to have a chat with him um, to kind of get some some understanding of, of uh, you know, how he, you know, how he navigated his way through and how best for us founders, uh, regardless of um, what stage we're at, um, to be able to, you know, try and get some, some perspective um, from from the veterans on this and um and um make some sense of it all and 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 you know um um start making decisions that will you know help our companies survive thrive um whatever the case may be and um so that's the premise we just wanted to get some advice here um and um yeah really enjoyed the chat and he's thinking on how to how to look at um you know what's ahead i hope you do too enjoy so welcome. Uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, sit down with uh, with me and uh, start up Brian community. If you don't mind, um, I'll jump straight in. I'm, I'm guessing you got a few of these lined up. I do. Um, so you know, I, I read I read the piece um, on lifeboat strategy, and um, you know, as an as an optimistic entrepreneur myself. You know, some of it, some of it's hard to swallow, right? Um, but before, before, actually, before I get into the strategy, can I, can I, can I get a little bit of background on um, on Steve Blank for for the young pups that don't know who the big dog is, and um, and um, and then second to that, you know, reading the bio today, how do you go from um, 
fixing planes in Thailand to um, you know leading academia. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, two, two, two part question. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, my career has been kind of interesting. It's uh, um, U.S. Uh, military for uh, four years in Vietnam era, and uh, eight startups in twenty one years, and uh, and then uh, almost two decades as an academic. Uh, one of the co-creators of something called the Lean Startup Movement, and um, you know, one of those gray-haired guys who, uh, when I was young, I would tend to ignore because they didn't have anything interesting to say. Because I invented sex and money and startups. You know, it was <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't pay attention either. Um, the only time you want to pay, pay attention to the old guys is if they actually live through some of the shit you're seeing now. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and and you still want to test it against your own what you're seeing yourself. And, and by the way, where are you physically located? I'm in coming are you, uh, Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. Melbourne. Uh, so, uh, you know, part of my career this was a year uh, in Pine Gap. Uh, so uh, I had a, uh, an interesting uh, Australian interlude as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I lived through the 87 crash, the 2000 crash, um, uh, the change in that happened in the U.S. after 9/11, and then our 2008 financial meltdown, and there were some common patterns, uh, you know, across all of them that I kind of observed. Wish I knew some, which I, I kind of figured out, and others I it cost me a lot of money not knowing at the time. And so I thought I'd just share, you know, some some of those heuristics that uh, might be helpful to. Uh, startups and, and people in uh, in small businesses. Yeah, and um, you know, I think that was the first one I wanted to, to touch on um, was um, the the part the crashes of uh, you know that you've been through was you know can you just talk about some of you know some of the um, you know the circumstances and and what um, you know what what the learnings were I suppose um, going through each of those. Well, the the one that. Uh, uh, that I retired just before was the crash of 2000 in the United States. And, and I don't know how, how much it affected Australia, but that was the, the crash of uh, the dot-com bubble. Yeah. Um, and it was a era of unbridled enthusiasm at the beginning of the internet. And uh, anything that had the internet in it was incredibly overvalued. And, but the race for liquidity then, that is how investors and, and founders made money was through the public markets, that is an IPO, um, which is a little different than today. And then one day, the, you know, just a game of musical chairs, the music just stopped playing, and, and uh, the values of those companies dropped precipitously. Uh, uh, public companies that were worth hundreds of dollars were worth pennies on the dollars, and most importantly, risk capital, venture capital at the time. There was angel, but very little angel money compared to, to today, just went away. I mean, VCs literally for the next two or three years weren't even returning calls. Uh, and more importantly, the customers that those early waves of internet startups were selling to, they were other tech companies and they disappeared. So your customers disappeared, your financing disappeared, and your markets disappeared, and therefore most of your startups disappeared. Um, and it was a hard and painful error. Um, and, and, you know, and the, it was, it was sorry. nuclear winter for uh, the, the tech economy. You know, just just prior to that, Steve, and kind of being ground zero with it all, 
was there just this, you know, um, crazy amount of optimism about, you know, we're changing the world and this is how it's going to be done with these dot coms and, and, you know, or was there, you know, some skepticism, you know, from yourself? How did it like kind of play out um, at that point in time? Because I've always been curious about that. Oh, uh, you know, there were skepticism for a while, but, you know, when all of a sudden everybody, including your grandmother, is making enormous amounts of money <laughs> by investing in anything that had a dot in it or internet in it, you kind of went, well, I guess I must be the stupid person. Um, yep. You know, I was on the other side of it. I, I had built an um, enterprise software company named Epiphany, and we went to a, from zero to $125 million of revenue. Not, wow. not market cap revenue in three and a half years. Um, but we went public with an $8 billion market cap. So, you know, everything was kind of outsized and, uh, and, and larger than life. Um, and, uh, and everybody drank the Kool-Aid um, until the day the, you know, the, the music stopped. Um, and the, the interesting thing then is because liquidity was via public market, the public got hurt um, when the when the collapsed. It wasn't just the tech companies, but your grandmother who did invest in something called the internet, she lost money. Um, not that she knew what she had been investing in, but everybody, including her friends, seriously, were there were investing clubs. It was kind of like tulips in the in, in the fifteenth century. It sounded good. Everybody's making money. Let's make some as well. In two thousand and eight, the crash was a little different. It was the collapse of the U.S. housing market that took down the rest of the economy, which took down uh, corporate and and, uh, and spending in general, and therefore took down um, for a while the, the tech business. Um, today's crash is radically different. This one isn't the pop of a bubble, nor is it about some other piece of the economy crashing. This is a self-imposed economic crash that we've decided, I think, um, across, you know, almost all countries that we kind of would like to keep grandma and grandpa alive. Um, and to do that requires shutting down a good chunk of our economy. This yeah. has never happened before. Uh, that is a, a planned economic crash has never happened before. Um, and, and it's affecting, obviously, different areas of the economy in different ways. Obviously, if you're in travel or retail or hospitality or parts of the gig economy, you know, it's not burn rate, runway, etc. You're just out of a job. But if you're in other parts of the economy, you know, um, telemedicine, you know, uh, remote learning, remote distance stuff, um, social connectivity, uh, you know, uh, home delivery, you can't hire enough people. Um, and some of these changes are, will obviously go away when um, when shelter in place uh, changes and, and we get back to work. But some of them are going to be permanent changes. Um, and so how this affects startups now, how this affects them in the next three months to six months, and how does it affect them over the next three years, that's an interesting conversation. I'm happy to share some thoughts. Yes, please. So uh, can you just kind of – I guess start with the you know the premise of the lifeboat strategy. Um, just the quick overview of it for for listeners that may have may not have read the post. Yeah, so so the idea is pretty simple. If you know there's kind of two types of uh, startups or even companies right now. 
those that are um, cash flow negative, which is a fancy word for saying you're spending more money than you're taking in, and if you're an early stage startup, you know typically your revenue is zero and you're just have burn rate. And then there are others who have uh, revenue coming in, um, but burn rate still might be higher than than cash spending. And there might be others who are pretty lucky that know you're profitable and uh, or or. or might even be more profitable. Uh, so, uh, in this in this change economy, let's kind of focus on the first two, which is if your burn rate um, is negative, meaning you're just burning cash. The first thing you need to calculate is okay, what's my runway? Which is a fancy word for saying how much cash do I have in the bank? How much am I burning per week? Or, and how many weeks or months of cash do I have left? It's a pretty formula. Yep. And, 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 and then the the other piece of math was, well, when did I expect to either go cash flow positive from customer revenue or when did I think I was going to get optimistically my next round of funding? And I'll contend that both of those assumptions are wrong. Right. Uh, whatever assumptions you had about uh, customers, funding, um business model, et cetera, everything you thought about your business model on the 1st of March, it cannot be correct today. It's just fundamentally, uh, I can't think of a business that has the same business model or should have the same operating plan um, uh, on the 1st of April as they did on the 1st of March. So there's kind of three steps I suggest startups need to think about. Step one is assessment of external environment an assessment of your internal environment, which is a fancy word for saying externally, what do you think is going to happen? And, yep. and do you think the world is going to you know, be just fine in 90 days? Or is it going to be just fine in six months or a year? So you need to make an assessment of what, of what, of what do you think the world, unemployment, your customers, outside your company is going to look like? And just... just you and your C-level staff need to kind of agree. In a second, I'll, I'll point out that you'll kind of circle back to your investors or advisors to see what they think, but you need to have an opinion. And, and trust me, if it says, oh, it ain't, ain't any different <laughs> tomorrow than it is today, you know, I don't know which rock you've been hiding under, but it's, it is different. And then the second part of that assessment is you need to look at your, as I said, your burn rate and runway. It's like, you know, what are we spending? What are the fixed costs, or at least what used to be fixed costs, rents, server expenses, et cetera, things you didn't think you could change? And what are the variable costs, which is a fancy word for what could you cut like tomorrow and, and they would go away? And some for startups, unfortunately, that's usually headcount, meaning people. It could be travel expenses, which you're probably not using anymore, um, or other things. And if you were already starting to sell, um, what's the true assessment of what your sales pipeline looks like? Um, and I have to tell you, the last person on earth to probably know what that is is your VP of sales. Uh, because VPs of sales, I mean, they're smart as, smarter than you are, but they have an interesting characteristic of being eternally optimistic. Yeah. And, and so what I have found in a crisis, you and your VP of sales together, this is a big idea, together, need to get on the phone and talk to your top 10 prospects or things in your pipeline and see, hey, are they still even answering the phone because they might not even be in business anymore? Have they put a freeze on 
uh, on many orders for the next 30, 60, 90, gosh knows how long days, or have they canceled? Or that is, you need to get an assessment of what you thought was in your pipeline. Is that still there? Yeah. And then you need to make a, um, a kind of a calculation of like, how do we manage cash? What, what do we need to do to survive? And that's just an assessment. And I would do that with my C-level staff or my co-founders rapidly, like in a day or two. This isn't a, a, a giant meeting. This isn't a consensus. This is just sitting together in literally a war room and doing nothing but doing an assessment of internal and external you know, things we need to know. And then after you write that up, here's what we think is going on outside. Here's what's going on inside. Here are the levers we have to pull. Not what you're going to do, but just what the state of the world is. Get on the phone to your investors and or advisors and see what they think. Say, this is what we think. Have you guys heard anything different? And if you have uh, professional uh, VCs, they're looking at 15 companies while you're just looking at one. So they might have other patterns or other pieces of data they could share with you. And it would be helpful for you to provide to them what you see. After that, you go into what I consider the, the planning stage, which, again, is not a three-month or even three-week. It's a three-day process. And that is you need to change three things in your company. And, and should I stop or keep talking? No, no, this is perfect. Yeah. Please, yeah, please so, go. so step one is assessment. Step two is planning. What's the change in your business model? Well, what does that mean? Well, if you were selling software to help large companies onboard new employees, trust me, they don't need that right now. Or at least maybe some do. Maybe, in fact, while you were targeting enterprise software for companies X, actually it's Walmart and Amazon you know, who need onboarding software. Or if you were doing you know, something X, maybe you need to be pivoting to something Y. That is, you need to go where the business is now. And if there is no business, then you need to figure out, like, are we getting cash down to, like, the minimum spend and getting everybody out of the building until we do have a business? But I would be brainstorming about what assets do we have in our business model? Is it our customers? Is there a channel? Could we do a new product market fit for the new normal? And instead of just having the C-level execs do this, which was the assessment part, I would open this up to everybody in the company. Any idea is, is valid and relevant, but it's not a discussion. You're, you're not like <laughs> building a consensus here. Mm-hmm. The C-level staffs, meaning that mostly the founders, are trying to get the best ideas they can at the table and figure out if this is the business you want to run during this downturn. And at, so that's the business model component of this. The second part of this, this planning component is what do we need to change in our operating plan, which is the lifeboat. That is, what's the number of people we actually need for the next however long we've assessed this is going to go on? Um, What kind of fixed costs that used to be fixed, like rent, can we now turn our CFO on and say, go renegotiate rent, where that was never even a conversation you could have? Trust me, people would rather be renegotiating rent than having rent go to zero. Um, or renegotiating leases or whatever. And then the third part, I I would be having your CFO or somebody focus on who's dealing with finance full-time is, where can I assure a a supply of cash now? Um, Maybe it's giving massive discounts to any customers who want to er early prepay. Anything to get cash in your bank to give you more runway. 
you know, if your VCs are telling you, oh, stay the course, we'll be right behind you in the next round. I wouldn't believe a single word of it until the check clears in the bank. Uh, and it's not because most of them are going to be venal or, or even stupid. But, you know, the last time something like this happened was 12 years ago. Yep. Half VCs weren't even VCs then. All they've seen is a market going straight up. Um, so, and the other half are probably doing lifeboat strategies themselves. I want to remind your listeners that if I'm a venture capitalist, Right now, I'm worried about not my early-stage startups. I'm panicked about my late-stage startups who are my most valuable things in my portfolio. If their customers have kind of collapsed, those most valuable unicorns are, are burning cash like no tomorrow, and I might lose my most valuable part of my portfolio if I'm not putting all my my funds into that, which doesn't leave much for my early-stage company. Right. I'm not suggesting every VC is going to do that, but you ought to understand if you're a founder or in a startup, all your sources of of investment are no longer assured. And, and so therefore, part of your planning exercise is, how do I assure myself a longer runway? Can I get bank loans? Is the government doing anything and any bailouts, et cetera? And then you want to, only, you want to circle back to your investors again saying, Okay, here's our plan. This is what we're going to do. Not not asking them what to do, telling them what you're about to do, and getting their feedback. And this is kind of important for entrepreneurs who've never been through a crisis. If your investors disagree, this is where you get to bet your job. You know, yeah. the, the worst thing you could be in, in a year or two from now is the CEO who ran his company or her company into the ground saying, well, my VCs told me to do X. Yeah. You know, that's a shitty excuse. Right yeah. now, you're the field general. They could either fire you um, or they could go, okay, you know, that's your bet. Um, but but it's your bet. And, and that was the part that uh, one of the things, and we'll go through later some of the things I wish I had done or known. Um, but uh, that's one of the things that a CEO needs to remember is, they are in charge, and, and they have to be right now willing to bet their job about the actions they take. Um, and then they move to the last step, which is step three, which is take immediate action. Um, so what I just described, step one, two, and three, should occur in a week, not in a month, not in like a bunch of meetings that schedule conference rooms to have meetings, to have the plan, to have the meeting, to have the conference room. Stuff needs to happen now. And a couple things need to change. Number one, particularly, is if you need, unfortunately, to lay off people. Um, the mistake I saw myself and others make continually in a crisis mm -hmm. is not not do enough of it at, at one time. Oh, we'll lay off five people and maybe we'll get better. Oh, we'll lay off ten and maybe we'll get better again. Oh, now it's time to lay off. When you do that, you paralyze the entire company who spends their entire time looking over their shoulder wondering where will the axe drop next rather than going on with a productive uh, uh, productive work environment. If you're going to cut people, unfortunately, you need to do it at once, all at once. And yes, people will be demoralized for a week, but when they realize there's no more coming, you've actually done the right thing. Yep. At the same time, you need to treat those people you lay off with compassion. You need to make sure that they have appropriate severance. 
need to make sure they have first shot at getting their jobs back. Um, all these things are, are pretty important. You need to treat the anything you you and anybody you need to let go with as much compassion as you can. The the worst case is if you are running out of money and and there is no runway, um, and you are seeing you might have to shut the company down. Probably the worst thing a founder could do to me it's like unexcusable is to run it down to zero and have no compensation at all by running out of you know paychecks. That's just I'm, I mean I don't know how to describe that, but that's just past incompetence. That's actually evil, um, and I don't care what your VCs say. You know you don't do that. Um, if you see no way out, do not run it down to zero. Make sure everybody has enough compensation. Uh, to go home and at least look for another job. Steve, can I can I just uh, can I just ask how like you know for me, uh, you know, this seems like the an, an easy trap for for people to to fall into. Given, I think by nature we we want to help the people we've hired and stuff. So do you? Um, is it just a matter of planning? You know, trying to set optimism aside. How do you kind of? Um, you know, make the tough calls so quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, so, so, so you remember I started with an assessment. So yeah. the, the worst thing you do, so there's, think about the, the, the span of, of ways you can act as a, as a startup CEO. You can either panic and, and, you know, make disconnected, you know, tactics and, you know, without actually thinking about why you're doing it. Or you could like stall and do nothing and have the world kind of bring it to you, which usually doesn't end well either. That's yeah. why I said you need a plan of assessment, you know, um, strategy and then execution. And um, and just as a sidebar, you know, people talk about oh, this this is why you need now a wartime CEO versus a peacetime CEO. You know, having served, I I, I find that. Um, particularly offensive, um, Mm -hmm. number one, because, you know, even in, even in a crisis here, we're talking about people losing their jobs, not losing their lives. But number two, um, and and here's the key point. It really misses what wartime, what leaders in, in, in wartime are trained for. As people in the army and Marines uh, are trained for the fight. And what that phrase means is training for the fight they train for, for fighting wars all the time. They're not training for fighting for peace. They're training for fighting for war. And they understand that war is like completely chaotic. It's unpredictable. But if you stand around waiting for people to tell you what to do, or if you can't make decisions rapidly, you and your people you're commanding are dead. Yeah. And so therefore, um, the notion of wartime CEO actually means people have been trained to operate in chaos, violence, and uncertainty. And the problem what we're all facing is uh, very few CEOs have been trained for that. You've been trained for finding product market fit, for growing and scaling your company. That is for a set of predictable activities, even though they're hard and they're difficult, etc., they're not chaotic and unpredictable and requiring decisions in a matter of days. Um, and, and so it's just hard for, so I'm trying to answer your question, Chris, about, yeah. about, you know, why startup CEOs and lots of CEOs are going to find this difficult is it requires a behavior change 
if you're acting the same way you did on Mar- on April 1st as you did on March 1st, your company's probably going out of business. Yep. You know, the whole, hey, we do things by consensus and everybody needs to be involved. And that was great when we had the time and 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 we were in control of the situation. Um, you have to be somewhat of a dick here, and I, and I mean that in a as a polite way of saying, you know, we're making decisions. There there really isn't going to be much dissension, and if there is, maybe you ought to leave as well because someone else could very much appreciate having your job. We're happy to take some input, but this is the direction we're going, and. And I hope you're on board with me because if not, I need all hands on deck. Um, I understand. I, I really, I really like the bit where look, if we just run this into the ground, you're going to get nothing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and and so, this isn't to be, you know, the the, the last part, by the way, of this, uh, of the second part of planning, I forgot, which is pretty critical, is when you're thinking about what goes in the lifeboat. Who do I keep? What programs do I keep? How do I pivot the business model? you got to remember there is going to be a morning after. Mm-hmm. And part of that assessment you did on day one was to figure out whether it's three months, six months, or a year. But there will be a morning after. It's not like this is a perpetual crisis. This will pass. Yep. And so the question is, what future seeds of programs, competitive advantage, things you have, great people, that even though logically, if you cut to the bone, which you're, hopefully your CFO is like insisting, you keep those kind of core things and sacrifice some others because when morning does happen, you want to be able to come out of this like a rifle shot um, and, and and not just have to hire all those scarce resources everybody else is going to hire. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you were kind of, you know, facing these tough times yourself, Steve, would you just – would you focus on the, you know, the generalists with a, you know, the right mindset or, um, ha, ha, you know, how did you kind of make this from a, from a, make these decisions from a people's perspective, I guess is a question. Yeah. You know, I'm going to just point out that people who are best at this and, uh, and, uh, just to give your listeners a bizarre point of view, you know, there are people who are called turnaround experts who come into large companies who have kind of lost their way, who are distressed, etc. And these are the most dispassionate SOBs, you know, in the world. They look around and, you know, they don't know Sally and they don't know Joe and they don't know, you know, your, your favorite program. Uh, but they do know, you know, what's the burn rate and what do we need to cut and what. And so you need to pretend you're the CEOs come in to save the company, not your, you know, this is your favorite X or Y or G, you know, within that framework, that's the first order decisions you need to make. Does that make sense so yeah, far? Yeah, it does. You got- the second order, though, is, is as I said, you, you want to, you know, if you have the ability to be compassionate of, Okay, if that needs to stay and these many people need to go, if it's a choice between someone with six kids and a sick mother versus someone who's 25 who could get hired somewhere else, you know, hopefully you're making some compassionate um, choices. But but the goal is if if you're trying to save everybody on the ship, you're all going to go down. So you need that's what I said going from this peacetime to wartime thing. It, it requires a different mindset. You're you're the CEO who's just been brought in to save your company, not the CEO who has a set of favorite X or Y. 
And the other part of being compassionate is, can you find them jobs in the other parts of the economy that are booming? You know, rules are changing forever. We're never going back to medicine as it is. Telemedicine is now like stuck forever. Yeah. Right. Remote learning is changed forever. You know, um, uh, you know, distribution of goods at home is we thought, you know, Amazon had, had it nailed. We're seeing 10 X growth. I mean, those types of things that people are hiring. Um, now, I, I should point out that if you happen to be one of those lucky companies who have or or can be in those markets, you're going to be hiring. And here's an interesting thing to think about is right now you can hire people you never had a shot at hiring before. Yeah. And if you have cash in the bank, I would over hire those people because you'll never get another shot at them. World class AI, you know, data science people, machine learning, remote, whatever your field is. If those people are on the street, you never could have seen and you say, well, you know, we've tightened this down and we could have, you know, two and a half years of runway. I would probably sacrifice, you know, to have two years of runway to kind of stock up on people that when the when the recovery happens, you have the world's best team to, to scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and just switching lanes, I suppose, in terms of. Uh um, you know, that being an optimistic, you know, like a positive point. Um, you, you know, I saw a post, I believe it was yesterday on the, on companies that started, uh, during a recession last time around. Um, and there were some big, some big names in there. Um, is this, you know, what are the opportunities, I suppose, for companies that are, are resilient at this time or, 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 um, you know, um, I guess placed, Place, to, place for success or looking at a company that could could thrive in this environment? Yeah, well, you know, number one is it depends on um, what investors do, right? Um, you know, is there, um, um, are, are there VCs who are going to be investing in early stage companies that also understand a recovery will happen at some point and they want to figure out who's that going to be? So first thing is uh, you need to know who they are. Um, and I would quickly dial through, um, you know, potential investors and say, are you even looking at deals in seed or A or wherever you are? Mm-hmm. Um, and number two is, um, and I've just now had calls with a good number of these startups is, and your pitch cannot look like <laughs> the same on April 1st as it did on March 1st. Yep. If it does, you don't get it, and people will laugh you out. It, and it doesn't mean it has to talk about virus and, and self-isolation and whatever, but it has to talk about why this is even a bigger deal now and how the world has changed. Or what is it you saw before that's still valid? Or what is the world going to look like? And, and so I would just make sure you take into account, A, are your funding sources still looking at deals in your stage? You know, and by the way, there's always VCs who do kind of go after early stage stuff. It's not that it's going to go to zero, but first of all, as I said, um, most of them are taking care of their own lifeboat. But there are others who will now say, "Hey, there! This is a great time to kind of look for those new big things, and or down rounds of things that are massively devalued." By the way, that's why they call them vulture capitalists in this phase, right, rather than venture capitalists. Um, but they will be out there and they will be funding new things. But but you have to understand 
that things are uh, things are changing. Um, so um, uh, yeah. let, let me put you on hold for one second. Sure. Uh, there, go ahead. Sorry, I, um, I'm, I'm good. I know I'm probably going over time here for you, Steve. So I'll just um, and appreciate the time. I imagine um, everyone wants to have a chat about uh, about this topic with with yourself. Yeah. Um, as as a last question, just you know, what's what's that last piece of advice uh, for someone that's you know gone through all this before and and, and um, um, yet to face it? And um, yeah, closing point, I suppose, uh, the, with the with the so, word of optimism. So, so there there are two things. One is I think I mentioned earlier is that um, you need if you if you decide that this is more than a ninety day change in your business. You need to decide how you're going to change running your company. It cannot be the same. You cannot be the same person with the same management skills. You're going to have to grow in uh, to the fact that the environment around you is forcing that. But the second thing for everybody, not just CEOs or founders, is that in times of crisis, people tend to reevaluate their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is this how you want to spend the next five or 10 or 20 years of your productive career? Yeah. If you're making an entertainment app, is that really went out your contribution to society? Or if you're making, you know, X or Y, is this what you want to give back to the world and the country? You know, because the measure of your life is not time. It's what you contribute to your, you know, your family, your community, your God and your country. Um, and, and people sometimes use these opportunities to think about it. So, um, uh, you know, I, I wish the best to, uh, to you and, and all your listeners and everybody should stay, stay healthy and safe and see you on the other side. Thank you very much, Steve. Love that. Um, appreciate your time and, and uh, best of luck yourself, mate. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.